May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. It might seem a bit odd to be again working with a text from the gospel infancy narratives, given that it's almost a month and a half since we celebrated Christmas, and it's increasingly a fading memory. Over the past several weeks, the lectionary has had us reading of an adult Jesus, calling his first disciples and setting out on his ministry of teaching and healing. And suddenly we're back with an infant again. Well, there is a rationale for this, and it actually makes good sense. Tonight we're marking something called the Feast of the Presentation, which, strictly speaking, falls on February 2nd not the fifth. We've transferred it to the closest Sunday. According to Luke, when the time came, Mary and Joseph went up to Jerusalem to the temple to fulfill the ritual requirements of the Torah. The time would have been 40 days after Mary gave birth. And so, in the liturgical calendar, this story is told 40 days after Christmas. Ah, there's the first part of the rationale. The feast day was traditionally known as Candlemas, a term not often used anymore. Not only on account of reading Simeon's words about Jesus being light to lighten the Gentiles, but because also on this day there was a tradition of blessing the candles that were to be used in the church over the coming year. In societies that lived without the luxury of light bulbs, candlelight was more than just decorative. It it might have been the only light you had. Think of it as kind of a Christian version of a festival of light. And so as a nod to that tradition, you'll see that we've set out a few more candles than is usual for a Sunday night. But on to tonight's reading from the Gospel When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought the infant Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. They offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, in this passage, Luke is actually conflating two separate ritual ceremonies. First of all, it wouldn't have been their purification, but rather Mary's ritual cleansing, in keeping with traditions set out in the book of Leviticus. It was this that required the offering of the two birds. Leviticus actually calls for the offering of a lamb and a bird, but it adds that if the mother cannot afford a sheep, she can bring two turtle doves or two pigeons instead. So Mary and Joseph are thus pictured bringing the offering of those who don't have means. This was a poor person's offering at the temple. The second ritual ceremony performed was the presentation of Jesus in accordance with the requirements set out in Exodus 13. In a kind of a reenactment of the Passover story, the first male offspring, whether human or animal, 
was considered to be God's property. In the case of animals, the firstborn was offered for sacrifice. A human child, on the other hand, was to be redeemed through an offering of five shekels. It's a bit of a bait-and-switch game in which the child was brought to the priest, but rather than leaving the baby there at the temple, an offering was made. And the parents then happily returned home with the baby safely in his mother's arms. Years later, when the child asks about the meaning of this ritual, the parents are to answer, By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And then they're to retell the whole story of the Exodus. So typical of the Jewish faith, Ritual was accompanied by storytelling, all meant to keep the deeper memory alive. And so, while Mary and Joseph are at the temple with their baby, they encounter two elders of the community, Luke tells us, the prophet Anna and the priest Simeon. In different ways, these two elders represent the comprehensiveness of the tradition that is embracing this infant. Jesus is welcomed and acclaimed by both a woman and a man. But Luke is signaling something more here as well. Simeon is a priest, so he's a recognized figure in the ritual life of the community with a very clear role and proper credentials. Anna, on the other hand, is called a prophet, which isn't a credentialed status. You don't go to school to become a prophet, but rather one based on a different kind of authority. The African-American theologian and culture critic Cornell West writes of how in his own social context there is what he calls the organic intellectual whose authority comes not from the formal academic world, not by virtue of having the degree, but rather through life in the community. So in West's African-American context, it's the preachers, the novelists, and the musicians who most often function as organic intellectuals. In Luke's context, it's people like Anna, or John the Baptist, or in fact, ultimately, Jesus. Now, what we hear in the response of these two elders, the male and female prophet and priest, is an exuberant and celebratory acclamation. This child is light to the Gentiles, glory for Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, salvation for the world. Notice again the comprehensiveness He's like to the Gentiles without ceasing to be Israel's glory. As David Neal, somebody with a real connection to our community, observes in his commentary on this passage, with Simeon's psalm, Luke launches the main theological project of his gospel, redefining the boundaries of salvation from the historic covenant community of Israel to the non-national community of the repentant. 
These new boundaries, this new community is so generous as to be unprecedented. Previously unimaginable, in fact. In the way in which the Gentiles are now included without excluding the original covenant community. It's part of why it's significant that this all plays out while Mary and Joseph are at the temple fulfilling the requirements of Torah. This is no rejection of the old covenant, but rather a sign of its deepest fulfillment. And yet the priest Simeon offers more than just words of recognition. He offers more than just this this greeting of acclamation. For after he blesses the family, he looks at Mary and he says to her, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Those words are also part of the launch of Luke's theological project. For in the very redrawing of the boundaries of salvation, there will be conflict and controversy. The redemption and salvation that this child will bring is not going to be an easy thing. Not for him, not for those he meets, whose inner thoughts will be brought out into the light and exposed. Light, you see, not only enlightens and lightens us, it also exposes and lays things bare. But this, too, is gospel. One of the central themes of our good news is that those who have the most to hide, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and all manner of messy people who are described generically as sinners, those are the ones with the most to hide. They come into the light. They come into the light of Jesus, and they discover in it a freedom they'd never before imagined, kind of like, oh, finally, I've been caught. Finally, it can stop. For them, the light is filled with surprising warmth the thing that Paul will later in his epistles call grace. Meanwhile, those who imagine that they've got life all figured out, that by virtue of their morality, their righteousness, their religious devotion, they're doing just fine, thank you very much. Those folks find this light something they need to oppose Classically, that's the Pharisees and the others in the official temple hierarchy. They oppose the light of Jesus because they're not sure that they like what they see when it's cast their way. And they sure don't like the fact that they're standing in the very same light as those sinners. For them, the light is cold, clear, and penetrating. And they'd rather it was just put out so life can get back to normal. 
And a sword will pierce your own soul too, Simeon says to Mary, which is his way of telling her that her own child's life was going to break her heart. Beyond a doubt, Jesus' path was a source of sorrow for Mary, not simply because in the end he died so brutally. That's part of the sorrow. Jesus ignored all manner of social convention. All the things that would have dictated that he get married, have kids, she could have his grandchildren, and exercise a primary loyalty to his family. He did none of that. And in fact, at one point, Jesus rather bluntly declared that in his view, blood ties didn't actually even define family. Who were my mother and my brothers, he asks rhetorically. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Even Mary would have had to wrestle with all that the light would lay bare for her. So do you see then why it makes so much sense to read this story at this point of the year? It invites us to look ahead a few weeks to the beginning of the season of Lent, in which we will be reminded both of the cost of it all for the one who is our light and of the challenge of standing exposed before him. That's Lent. Yet in company with the priest Simeon and the prophet Anna, we can also look back over our shoulders, back toward the light of Christmas, to be reminded that there is much to celebrate in the very fact of the incarnation of Christ, the coming of light into darkness in all of its promise and all of its truth. Midway between the seasons, we stop and hear a story that ties them together. And from here, what do you hear in the challenge of Simeon and Anna? What do you feel as you stand in the light? Take that forth from this place. Amen.